agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my, well, libertarian counterpart, I guess I could say, Oklahoma Christian University political scientist, Trey Orndorff. Hey, Trey. Hey, Mike. It's good to be here. And uh, hey, so I get to be the libertarian? That sounds like fun. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, normally, of course, it's my conservative counterpart, uh, Jay, but Jay is in transit today and so can't be with me. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to be doing the show with you. It's kind of a, a carryover from our midweek shows. We generally don't get to talk a whole lot, but uh, but here we are. So now should I channel Jay today or should I just be myself? Should, uh, I, should I try to reach into the mega spirit? And... <laughs> let's, let's not even think what that would be like. So uh, let's <laughs> okay, okay. stick with me. I say you do you. But anyway, uh, we, we do have a lot to cover. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. Biden's speech just last night in Philadelphia, the search warrant and the developments of that with with Donald Trump and uh, Alaska results and some thoughts on ranked choice voting, maybe even more. We'll see how much time we have. But there's a lot of stuff, train I want to get into, and we're going to get it start getting into that in just one second. All right, Trey, you know, before we do get started, I wanted to point out to some listeners last week we had a few Technical difficulties on the show. Some of you might have noticed around the halfway mark, there were some issues. And then toward the end, uh, we tried to correct those and post an updated version. But how a lot of podcast apps work is that once you've downloaded the episode, if it's set to automatic download, it doesn't necessarily re-download. So if you did get a slightly corrupted version, our apologies. We, we corrected that as soon as we could, and we've taken care of the issues behind it. So. We should be all good from this point on. So, all right. So I thought we would start with uh, uh, the death, uh, uh, the life and death uh, of Mikhail Gorbachev, who died Tuesday at the age of 91. Now, Gorbachev was, of course, the last leader of the former Soviet Union, came to power in the mid 80s. And he he was certainly not an anti-communist. I mean, he was uh, an ardent believer in the Soviet system, but he felt that his country was on an unsustainable path, and he hoped to save that system by reforming it through a campaign of uh, what's often called glasnost and perestroika, meaning openness and restructuring, that was sort of intended to make the country more democratic and more capitalist, but, you know, not too democratic or capitalist. Uh, but change, once it began, got away from him and really the rest of the Soviet ruling elite. And so instead of revitalizing the Soviet Union, he presided over its dissolution, which was followed by a, a chaotic, corruption-filled transition to democracy that ended, well, with the uh, rise to power of Vladimir Putin in the early 21st century. Um, and, you know, Gorbachev was hailed by a lot of folks in the West as sort of a heroic visionary, though in Russia he was and still is frequently reviled for instituting the reforms that they felt were responsible for the collapse of the Soviet system. Now, it's been over 30 years since Gorbachev was in power, and so you might reasonably wonder, well, why are we talking about him, especially in a podcast that focuses on present-day American politics and policy? And it's a good question. So, Trey, I'm going to throw that to you. 
Why do you think we should care about her, or what do you think we can learn from Mikhail Gorbachev that matters to us today? Besides the fact that we're old and that, uh, <laughs> yeah, there there is that. I'm reminded of that every day. But yeah, uh, you know, as professors, we get that. I mean, I think it's one of the things you have to kind of start with to answer that question is it is probably difficult. I know it's difficult for me to help identify or have students understand the extent to which the Soviet-U.S. relation shaped even domestic. American politics for a significant period of time, and that the relationship between the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union was a critical aspect of things of like thinking about who ought to be president of the United States, right? Uh, and, and so it is, it can, it can, I think sometimes in retrospect, when we look at things historically, it can oftentimes be hard to recognize the kind of emotional, uh, structural impact that these moments can have. So, yeah, I mean, the, re the reason it's worth thinking about him is, is the Soviet Union for a, a long period of time, in many ways, determined a lot of the conversation and the domestic policy of the United States, right? I mean, right down to, you know, I, I grew up with my parents talking about hiding under, you know, doing the, the, the nuclear drills where you're going to hide under desks and, and, and save yourself somehow, I suppose. But, you know, but you know, that's kind of, that was, that was part of their DNA. And that was, you know, part of our thinking. As a matter of fact, it's hard to separate in some ways, the way that we think about, um, 9-11, I was thinking about this from the way we kind of thought about Cold War era politics, but so I think that's one really big reason that this is important. Yeah, I, I certainly would agree. And you know, I think uh, there's also the there's a quote from I believe it was Graham Graham Allison, who's a, a political scientist, social scientist, who suggested that when when Xi Jinping has nightmares, that the sort of the figure in his nightmare is Mikhail Gorbachev. And I think you know that the lesson here is that. Major reform uh, can be difficult to, or reform can be difficult, difficult to control. You, you want to change something, but sort of keep it, you know, in a box. And that can be really, really tricky. And that's just a more general sort of lesson, I think, for reformers of, of all types. And so not only that, but I would argue that major reform can have, you know, big unintended consequences, both positive and negative. So certainly at the time we saw a lot of folks uh, saw Gorbachev as kind of leading the, the so former Soviet Union into a greater democratic era there was this period and again this gets back to us being old in the in the early in, in the in the 1990s where it was thought like wow there is this end of history moment the soviet union is democratic we're we're bringing we're bringing china into this sort of uh, uh capitalist economic sphere and they're going to democratize and the world's going to be one big happy family and won't that be awesome and of course you know now you could argue that in some ways that the soviet that russia is in uh worse shape than it was because it's not a ruling elite but it's become this sort of autocratic authoritarian one person state which could potentially be worse. And uh, certainly the thing with China didn't come to pass. And the lesson that China seems to have learned from the Soviet Union is, man, don't just ruthlessly crack down on any dissent and don't don't open up that door even a little bit to freedom because it's just going to end. It's going to end in tears for you if you're part of the ruling elite. So that's kind of what I, you know, what I take about, uh, take back from that. Uh, also, I guess the fact that, you know, it was a, Looking back then, while wow, the world was such a different 
place. If we look back to 1990, you know, the U.S. was still on top economically. But at that point, you know, the, the Soviet, the former Soviet Union was the third largest economic power in, in the world. And of course, now they're that's just not the case anymore. So you can understand why a lot of Russians might be nostalgic for a point where they were actually, you know, one of the two preeminent powers in the world. And that's just not the case anymore. You know, I think economically they're like the 11th largest economy, which isn't nothing, but you know, it's like they're right up there with Brazil, I guess. And it's like, well, that's, you know, and so that can be, that can be a pretty tough thing to, a pretty tough thing to take, I think. Well, I mean, I think you're right. And that's kind of comes into the second part of it. You know, what does it matter? I think I think Russia is a phenomenal case of the power of a little bit of freedom. Right. You know, as you had said, small reforms can have big outcomes. And specifically, I think and this is, and I, I think you're right when you talk about potentially the lessons to authoritarians, which is to grant small amounts of freedom is to create the seeds of your own ultimate destruction. Now, the, the problem, I think. In, in Russia. And this is where I think a lot of democratization theorists had problems. Yeah, you were mentioning the end of the, you know, the end of history theory, kind of the Fukuyama uh, point of view, right? But th this, this has roots in this idea that all the world was going to uh, democratize. I, I think the problem is, is the idea that given freedom, everyone will always choose the kinds of outcomes that we've chosen in the United States or in other kinds of uh, advanced Western democracies. And instead, in the case of R Russia, you have elites hijacking that process, kind of having a corrupt liberalizing process that leads to, to a, a personalized dictatorship, Putin power in yeah. Russia, if you will. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's also a lesson. You know, freedom is an amazing thing, but it doesn't always lead to the outcome that you think it will. And I, and I think that was something that scholars had, democratic transition theorists specifically, had to really wrestle with this. They were so committed that democracy was the right thing that they assumed that everyone would always pick that. Yeah. And, and when they did not, I think that was a surprise, but, but it, it was a teleological flaw. And in, in so I, I think those are two other lessons we can take away. Freedom is powerful, but it doesn't always lead to the outcome, you might imagine. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. So why don't we move on from uh, from Gorbachev and kind of focus back on the domestic sphere with uh, just last night, in fact, Thursday night in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. President Biden delivered a speech in which he stated that equality and democracy are under assault and that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy. He made the case that democracy endures only if we, the people, accept the results of free and fair elections, only if we, the people, see politics not as total war, but mediation of our differences, and that democracy cannot survive if one side believes there are only two outcomes to an election, either they win or they were cheated. And that's where the MAGA Republicans are today. Uh, Biden further urged Americans to resist what he termed the assault on American democracy to speak up, speak out, get engaged, and vote, vote, vote. Now, in response to Biden's remarks, Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the Republican National Committee, said, Joe Biden is the divider-in-chief and epitomizes the current state of the Democratic Party, one of divisiveness, disgust, and hostility toward half the country. 
So, uh, yeah, there, there, there we go. And in fact, on, on that note, we are actually uh, just shortly to be joined by a third co-host, uh, Chase Law School professor Ken Kacken, who's just jumping on. Uh, we were hoping Ken would join us today. It looks like he will be here in just a second. Uh, Ken, I, I, I was just saying to listeners that uh, you, uh, you're able to join us for the conversation. We were just getting ready to talk about President Biden's speech in Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Sorry I'm late. I was on uh, Skype. I didn't realize you guys <laughs> yeah. were on Zoom because I usually do it uh, on Skype with, with Trey. Yeah, th- not a problem. And I just sort of did the intro to that and we were talking about. It. So let me let me start, Ken, while you're getting uh, getting up to speed here. Trey, w- what did you think about President Biden's speech? Well, I'll be honest, I always read speeches. Uh, and so last night I read this, uh, the transcript of it, looked at a lot of the photos of it. And I didn't get a lot of sleep last night for unrelated reasons. And so I read it a few times and meditated on it. There's parts of it that I'm deeply appealing to me, uh, but I think that he misses something. So I want to kind of walk through a few of the, the, maybe the, the central epiphany that I had. One, I think he's right in calling out and boldly calling out the idea that there is a portion of the Republican Party, uh, the MAGA Republicans, he calls it, that are a, that are that are a threat to the very foundations of democracy because they want to be a threat to the foundations of democracy. It's I, I think it's it's worthy of the president's attention to say that, and and I don't think it's wrong and divisive to make that point. Um, likewise, I I really liked. For example, he says, you know, let me be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans or mega Republicans, not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these Republicans uh, and quote, uh, you know, so that idea that he is going after everybody. But I, I think it's, it's it's a point well taken on his part to just say it out loud, to say the quiet part out loud. And let's move that forward. And, but here's where I think I disagree with him. And here's where I think my epiphany came as I continued to read and meditate and think about this. And that was, he has this piece in his speech where he notes that kind of rebellion is not in the DNA of America. And I thought, no, actually it is. It's right in our foundational DNA. All you got to do is look at the Declaration of Independence. We hope, you know, for what reasons can we overthrow a government and institute a new one in its place? That's, that's, That's part of our DNA, the idea that we can revolt, the idea that we can throw off institutional structures. And I think what we're viewing in the country today, and I think it was kind of made clear to me in the kind of responses to the speech, is that there's a portion, what what, what Biden is calling the mega Republicans, there's a portion of individuals who have decided that that we have crossed that Rubicon and it is now time to have it. But what's unique about it is they don't want to make that clear, right? So they don't want to have their own declaration of independence. So they they want to take that action without making that clear, which is unique, right? Normally, I would imagine you'd want to to say that part out, like you've done this wrong and we're going to overthrow. They want to continue to have that auspices. And so I think what the the portion that Biden, I think on on a tweak here gets wrong is the idea that A, we don't have that as our DNA, and B, that the problem is, is that they both want to embrace the idea, that American idea of 
reconstituting governments for ends that they would find better. Um, but they want to do that at the same time as they want to claim to still be a part of the democratic process. And, and you can't be both, right? You know, you're, you can't still be part of Great Britain and fighting from it simultaneously. That's just not how that works. Um, but I, I, I liked that he called out mega Republicans, but I, I recognize that puts me in a minority of Republicans, I'm sure. Yeah. Trey, uh, or sorry, Ken, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about it from a few different angles, I guess. Like, first, I thought um, just, you know, as a matter of presentation, I, I didn't think he did as good a job as the January 6th committee's been doing. But, I mean, the January 6th committee's been really um, illustrating the points and proving the points that um, Biden just simply stated. You know, he stated them without providing a lot of examples of what he's talking about. Maybe he assumes by now everybody knows what he's talking about. But, um, you know, and of course, he had, you know, much less time to, than the January 6th committees had to, to uh, unfold the presentation. And, and he is a president, so he's going to speak at a higher level. But it, it kind of struck me that um, most Democrats probably already knew the things that he was saying. Most Republicans, contrary to what he said, you know, are MAGA Republicans, and so they're 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 not really going to accept what he's saying. And so it made me wonder, um, you know, who's the audience? And I, I guess the two audiences I could see, there's some um, Republicans or former Republicans. I guess Trey just put himself in this group um, who are uncomfortable with Trumpism. I, I think that's a, a minority of the Republicans, but but I think he is. Um, trying to create a framework where that group feels um, more um, correct in, in not voting for not voting Republican this time out. And maybe the, the other part of the audience is just the Democratic base and trying to get them more stirred up, although I, I, I think, you know, we're pretty stirred up already. So um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't I didn't I, I was sort of glad that he said that stuff just because I liked it. But I, I don't <laughs> yeah. really know what kind of political balls it's moving forward. You know, yeah, can, that, can I respond yeah, to that, that a little would, bit? My, uh, my, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So uh, one of the things I want to be careful about there, you know, so can I, I get what you're saying. You're doing that analysis in terms of, you know, what's the political ball that's moving forward? Who's that audience? But I do think that it, it, we have presidents in part to to kind of be that narration of what's happening. I, th I think that is the orator's responsibility of the president. And so I think, I think Biden, his presidency to me in some ways would have been a moral failure had he not been willing to say what he said last night. And so on that front, at least, e even if there isn't a... I don't think we can always say, hey, what, what's the what's the political ball that is going to move forward? Sometimes things have to be said because they're the things that have to be said. Yeah, I, sorry. I, I, no, I, I think I think it was a bad speech. It felt more like a a D triple C ad to me. That's Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. For those of you, I get these things in my inbox all the time because, you know, I contribute to certain liberal causes. It, it, it felt like a slightly less hysterical version of that, which is not to say that I don't disagree with him, that I disagree with him on a lot of the facts, but he, it was sort of an afterthought that, oh, yes, there are some good Republicans. That was almost a throwaway line. 
I've worked with them. And then the rest was, and, and to me, I, I think this, this fundamentally is, is I, I agree, this is weird, I agree with Ron and McDaniel here. I generally don't agree with Chair of the RNC, but <laughs> and I disagree with you here, Trey, this is a divisive speech because there's no way that anyone who, those tens of millions of Americans who voted for and support Donald Trump are going to see this as anything but a direct attack on them. And so it was intended to be a divisive speech. You know, I had Ken's concerns about or questions about who is this for? And I think it is. It was for the base to energize the base. But kind of like Ken, I feel like I don't know that that was that all that necessary. And it seems to me that it was a speech that that Biden wanted to be politically helpful in any way, as opposed to just some sort of big campaign ad, well, then there would have been more about the purveyors of these lies in the media and why their lies more along the lines of the January 6th thing. And let's just let's just let's just hit MAGA Republicans again and again and again. And so I think it was a, a, at best a wasted opportunity at worst, just sort of a craven political political ad. And so I, I was I was hugely disappointed in this speech. Uh, but that said, I do think that democracy is in danger in certain ways. Uh, and so I can agree with it and, and, you know, also believe that I just think it was, again, kind of a wasted opportunity. So that's my takeaway. I like that I came to the on the left of the all for once. Yeah. Like, this is phenomenal. This doesn't happen often. I think we can mark this down in the calendar, September yeah, 2nd. If I, but, um, thing, if I could add one more thing based on what Michael said, because I, I mostly agree with Michael on this. Um, I think one thing that might have been very useful, like one missed opportunity in a speech like this was, um, you know, maybe he wasn't going to redo all the work of the January 6th committee and give all the examples they've given of how much Trump tried to undermine democracy. But I think he could have thrown in a few more examples of um, other other Republicans other than Trump um, and other than uh, the Trump world um, trying to undermine democracy. And one one example I probably would have used is, you know, in, in Michigan um, right now. Um, uh, uh, enough signatures were collected to put a, a row uh, ballot initiative um, on the ballot, but because um, the board of canvassers has to have two Republicans and two Democrats, the, the two Republicans for, for no reason at all are just refusing to, to put the, the, the ballot initiative on the ballot, even though they have not said that there were any problems with the signatures or anything like that. And so that's just, I think that's sort of part of this whole anti-democracy movement. And I think it would have been useful in the speech to show that Trump sort of breathed air into an anti-democracy movement. And now the anti-democracy movement is um, infecting, you know, other parts of our democracy, even in places where Trump doesn't really have his personal hand in at all. I think that would have been a useful kind of uh, way to make more points or give more examples. But I I feel like a speech like this without examples was really, um, it did just seem... Uh, unnecessarily divisive. Well, can I ask you? Can I ask you guys both a question? Then I'm curious. So, so maybe I'm jaded in part. So maybe I'm jaded in part because as a long time not Trump Republican, I'm tired of the the these kinds of elements continuing to control the party, and as a result, that has bittered me in some ways towards uh, uh, MAGA Republicans and, 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 and uh, as, their, as their kind of takeover of the Republican Party. But I guess, so Ken, I, I hear what you're saying there, and Mike, I hear what you're saying there, but I don't understand how to both take what you're saying, like, look, we need to be very concerned about democratic principles, but Biden needs to play nicer with MAGA Republicans. I, I don't know, I, I don't reckon, like, 
if we if you guys are both honestly on board with me on the idea that mega republicans would be willing to to undo democracy it seems weird to then say but man you made them mad i don't know well, we well, see, <laughs> I, I disagree i think that the, the, the issue isn't that mega republicans want to undo democracy at least the majority of them they are being fed a false narrative that the left is undoing democracy by rigging elections and that's they're they're buying into that but there are some there are some very powerful very clever people from donald trump on down who are pushing what they know to be a false narrative for their own personal power and so I see those tens of millions of Americans who bought into this as, as victims of a cynical ploy and not as not part of the problem. And the, the problem are the Tucker Carlson's and the Donald Trump's and the Victor Orban worshipers and so forth who are who are using, who are manipulating the public, who are uh, that that portion of the public who are angry and confused for understandable reasons, I think, largely into giving giving air and power to this movement. So those are the despicable ones, not the not the 60, 70 million Americans, whatever, who are, you know, maybe consider themselves MAGA Republicans. That's that's my take on it. All right. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK, I'm sorry to know. I, I, I think also, well. I think that there's there's also um, a, a broader based anti democracy movement um, within um, re- Republican um, uh, elected officials, appointed officials, political uh, activists. I don't think it's just the Trump people. That that's why I used the the Michigan um, sure. uh, board of canvassers there as an example. But I but I do agree with Mike. That's not the majority of Republican voters, and so I I would I would sort of yeah try to pitch it as examples of. Not just the media, but and not even just the Trump people, but other examples where the levers of power are being uh, abused. But but I, I I wouldn't. Yeah, I would agree with Mike that since I don't think that there's 60, 60 million Americans who really self self identify that way, that it, it's not um, helpful for a president to to be name calling. Also, I think a president, you know, this this was nominally at least a, a presidential speech, not a political speech, and. Uh, and he gave it in his capacity as as president, not not in his capacity as a um, a, a democratic candidate. And uh, I I think he just should he is president. He should try to be less divisive. Unifying the country is is part of what he ran on. And to some extent, you know, for a while he was doing a good job of it. And uh, um, in fact, some of his legislative record in in the first year and a half does involve uh, bipartisan uh, accomplishments. So um, I, I think that he he I mean he did mention that, but I. I, I just I don't know. I just I keep having to think about speeches in terms of what do they accomplish? Let's move on. It's been just over a week since U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt ordered the release of a highly redacted affidavit laying out the FBI's rationale for their search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home and office on August 6th. Now, that happened just a little bit too late for Trey and Ken to include it in their discussion on last week's show. And so we wanted to get this in today, along with you know any subsequent developments, including the Trump camp's request for a special master to review the seized documents and also new assertions from the Justice Department that classified documents being held at Mar-a-Lago were likely concealed and removed in an attempt to obstruct investigation of the former president. So, Guys, I know you've had chance to look over the affidavit, and, and maybe we'll start with with you, Ken, being our being our legal guy here. I mean, what did you think, and did it change your view or of of whether or not the FBI was justified in their search, or if I guess if Judge Reinhardt was right to issue the warrant? 
well, there wasn't a lot to learn from the uh, uh, unsealed affidavit because um, every every single <laughs> part of it that went with the to the basis of knowledge was redacted. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> yeah. the you know, I mean, if the question was how did the FBI know uh, what they expected to find and and where they expected to find it. You know, every bit of that was redacted. You know, on the other hand, the proof is obviously in the pudding. They they executed the warrant and they found the things that they said they would find and they found them in the places that they said they would find them. So obviously they did have a proper uh, basis of knowledge to establish uh, probable cause. You know, extremely different, I have to point out, than when the uh, the FBI executed a similar search warrant on Anthony Weiner's laptop back during the 2016 election, a totally spurious one where when they actually took that laptop and 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 influenced the outcome of the election they never found a single thing on it that they said that they were going to find on it you know but but in this case we are we already know that the um the 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 FBI found um the documents they expected to find so i i feel like the warrant was definitely proper um, I don't know if you also wanted me to address the special master issue. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because I think that might be a concept that a lot of folks aren't necessarily all that familiar with. And just just to, if I understand it correctly, one would have expected a more competent legal team on the Trump camp to ask for a special master right away, but they waited quite a while, and it almost might be one could argue a moot point, right? Well, maybe moot, maybe not. Um, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't really fit this context very well because Trump hasn't been indicted, right? And in that sense, maybe it's not a moot point because if he is indicted, um, there will be um, some disputes about what can be admitted into evidence. And that would be the, the general uh, purpose of a special master. So um, the, the, it's, he's using it in a weird way here because he's trying to say that there's um, perhaps some, some documents that, should be, that were taken that should be returned to him. But in a typical special master uh, uh, situation, the, the special master would be deciding in the context of someone who's been indicted um, what what kinds of um, what, what what can be admitted into evidence and what can't what's privileged. Um, so it's not it's not obvious to me what the purpose of a special master would be unless there's a subsequent uh, indictment. I would also say I don't see that there's any basis for one here because maybe I, maybe I can simplify this by talking about a situation where one would be used yeah. and then say why I think this is different. So um, there was a there's a famous case um, uh, uh, involving Congressman William Jefferson um, where the FBI ser served a search warrant on his congressional chambers. Uh, this was around 2007, I think, and uh, um, and they, they they were looking for evidence that he'd been taking bribes. And they, they had probable cause to believe uh, that the cash that he'd been bribed with was actually in his congressional chambers, lots and lots of bills. And so they, um, they, they, they executed a search warrant in there. And when the, when the FBI came in, they, they found all the cash um, actually in the freezer that was in their uh, kitchen that, yeah. that was in his chambers. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they also took quite a lot of um, his legislative work product. They, they, they emptied out his files where he stored um, papers and documents and took a lot of that. Um, now, um, William Jefferson, who was then indicted for bribery, uh, argued that um, he, under the speech or debate clause, the same clause that Lindsey Graham's been raising lately, um, which says that members of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place uh, for anything in, in connection with anything they say in, in a speech or debate in Congress. Um, Jefferson raised that and said that all this evidence that they took from my chambers they should not be allowed to admit in, in evidence in the, in the bribery trial because it's privileged under the speech or debate clause. 
Now, in in a case like that, um, the the court ruled that a special master should be appointed, and the idea is that the special master should look through um, all the documents that were taken and and decide whether they're privileged or not, um, so that they could be returned um, to to Jefferson rather than looked at by the prosecutors um, who would be thinking about whether they could use that evidence in the in the bribery prosecution. So the, the relevance was really what, whether the prosecutors could use this to prove out bribery by looking at the contents of, of what was in the documents or whether they should be prevented from even seeing it by, by a special master. Now, the, the reason I think that's not so, I mean, Trump's making the analogy here and he's saying, so therefore I have some stuff that's privileged. I should be able to um, have a special master look at whether it's privileged or not. And the prosecutor shouldn't be able to look at it uh, if it is. But I think the, the, the several problems with that are, um, number one, I don't think the substance of what's in these documents is relevant in any way to the main crimes that are alleged in the warrant, right? It's just that he stole government property and he stole presidential records. And you wouldn't have to look in the documents to, to know that that's what, what they are. So I, I don't think that whether the documents would be privileged or not would matter. The other problem that he has is that um, executive privilege has been formally waived by the president. And there's certainly no authority at all that would suggest that a former president could claim privilege that a current president has, has waived. Um, we typically, typically it's the conservatives that are the most adamant about the unitary executive theory and the idea that all the executive power is vested in one president of the United States, which is Joe Biden. So he's the one who could claim or waive executive privilege. And the final thing is that, that Trump hasn't been indicted for anything yet. So I think there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of inapplicability of this um, special special master uh, procedure here. I, I guess before I get your, your uh, take on this, Trey, I guess my sense is that Trump is making less of a legal argument than a political argument, which is the FBI is corrupt. They they're going after me. They have my stuff. Therefore, they shouldn't be able to decide what they can see or whatnot. There should be somebody who's neutral, which I'm sure in, in, in Trump world would mean someone who's a, you know, a, a partisan of mine who makes these decisions. And so I see this, again, more as a political argument than as a legal argument, I suppose. Um, Trey, what do you think? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I would just say by statute, it's, it's not his stuff. It's it's yeah. all the government's stuff. Right. None of it is his stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, what do you think, Trey? Yeah. I mean, well, so and this is something maybe you know, Ken, you can talk more into. But as as I look at it, and again, admittedly, we're getting to the point where my legal analysis or pushing on the, on the abilities of, of my background, uh, but there does seem to be a difference between what the Trump team is arguing in court and what the Trump boosters and Trump himself are saying. And, and, and that seems like, once again, kind of a, often the deadly legal strategy, right? So, for example, on Truth Social, uh, I believe this was been on Wednesday, uh, Trump was noting about how, you know, they took things from this particular file folder and that file folder. Uh, indicating that he knew precisely and what was the material being taken while in his filings to the point that we can see, it appears that the answer is, look, we gave them everything and we didn't know there was anything else that could have been uh, uh, necessary to come back. It seems a little bizarre. It, it, it seems like a bizarre messaging. Now, I, I, I can I can talk more about that on the, you know, the as you're saying, Mike, on the the, the political facing side. It seems like a really terrible strategy on the legal side. And so, Ken, again, you can talk more into this, but oftentimes 
you know, for my dealings, when you saw a client and what they were saying in conflict with what their legal counsel is filing and doing, you were usually looking at somebody who was in a really bad place, right? There's you know, lots of problems. But I mean, of course, we've said that about Trump before, but I don't know. It, it, it seems really bizarre to me that he continues to seemingly provide additional evidence that could be used if he ends up being prosecuted. I mean, most of the time, this would be the time to just shut up and just complain that the DOJ is political, right? Like, why say anything specific? See, I I wonder, now maybe I'm giving Trump too much credit here, but, you know, I wonder if Trump actually wants to egg them on in a certain way. And this is sort of, I guess this is where I'm, my main concern lies. I, on one hand, I think that Merrick Garland is an incredibly smart and and cautious, judicious guy. And so the fact that to me, the fact that he signed off on this suggests that there's a very real possibility that there's something huge here and that there's potentially a very good case for an indictment and conviction of Donald Trump on very serious crimes and not just kind of an obstruction sort of thing. Uh, but 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 on the other hand, I'm just concerned. There's that there's that famous I don't know if it's a famous quote, but one of my favorite shows of all time is The Wire. Right at one point, Omar Little says, "You come at the king, you best not miss." And I think, yeah, they've come <laughs> at the king twice already. And to me, if there's another, you know, potentially an indictment and then uh, not a conviction, then that just makes Trump even stronger. And so that's I guess that's where I'm sort of torn. I think. I, it's hard for me to see Garland is going forward without this, without some kind of a really strong case. But at this point, of course, we don't know enough. I don't know what that case is. And so I'm wondering if, if Trump's just going to kind of slip through the net once again. And every time he does, it just strengthens the case that he's being unfair, the most prosecuted, biggest witch hunt in American history. And I think that makes him even stronger. So this is a this is a dangerous thing that Garland and the DOJ are doing. And I just hope that they know what they're doing. Uh, Ken, what do you think? Well, yeah, I. I share that concern, but I think, you know, a lot of people right below Trump um, could be um, um, indicted and convicted. I mean, in fact, you know, both um, Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn uh, were indicted and convicted while he was president, although he he pardoned them. But I think in this episode, as as Trey was averting to you, it's absolutely uh, a foregone conclusion now that um, his his lawyer, uh, Christina Bob who was also his formal uh, custodian of records under the, um, the, the, the Presidential Records Act, she's certainly going to be um, convicted. And I think that um, I agree, Garland is probably still not decided whether he's going to move forward against Trump. But I think if he keeps moving forward against other people that were facilitating Trump, we know Giuliani's being targeted now. We know Eastman's being targeted now. Um, you know, I think all these people are going to be prosecuted, and I think they're, a lot of them are going to be convicted. And that um, the decision of whether to actually indict Trump, I'm sure, is still down the road and has not been made yet. But I I think that there's still um, the Justice Department's moving forward on a lot of cases against the Trump world. You know, I've heard some folks suggest that this is along the lines of it should be viewed as sort of like an like an organized crime uh, operation is that you you focus on these lower level people and you hope that one or more of them flip. Because as it stands, if nobody if nobody does sort of uh, implicate directly Donald Trump, I, I think the most likely result is you'll get some lower level convictions. But Trump won't end up 
being convicted. And so, again, he comes out of that, I think, even even stronger potentially than before. And that's a I think that's a gamble, uh, a a calculated risk uh, that I guess Garland and the DOJ are taking. Well, I mean, Nixon was never indicted either. And of course, he was pardoned. But uh, I think in the in the case of in the court of public opinion, by virtue of the fact that all of his um, uh, top deputies were were convicted uh, and he was pardoned, um, you know, the case for guilt was was made, I think, in, in the court of public opinion. And, you know, Biden could actually pardon Trump. That's another that's another possibility that's there, you know, and uh, um, and and could could convict uh, the, the Justice Department could convict a lot of his his top deputies and, and henchmen. Can I ask, I'm glad you brought that up because this has been rolling around in the back of my brain. So, I mean, the likelihood that the DOJ brings charges against Trump seems slim to me for a variety of reasons. So if you're Biden, why not just pardon Trump blanket (laughs) and then everything that then here on after he can't complain about being against him. It has, it's all of his cronies that are going up. And it it just undermines any. Well, I'm I'm being witch hunted. No, you're not. I've pardoned you for everything. Done. Moving on. I mean, I recognize that's a potentially risk. I mean, I just don't think the likelihood is is that is that Trump gets convicted, uh, uh, indicted, in large part because the the non legal political ramifications would be catastrophic. Well, you know, I, I don't know that Trump would actually have to accept. A pardon, and I don't know that he would accept a pardon from Biden. But but even if that were the case, you know, there's still the fact that Joe Biden apparently uh, is is interested in being a two-term president, and I think that would perhaps doom him to a one-term presidency. So I, I just don't think politically that's something that that Biden would even consider doing. You could make maybe a but Biden, but, go ahead. but Biden can't. He's I, mean, I think he's savvy enough here if his poll numbers continue to remain low to realize that he's got to be a one-term president. There, there's just no hope for him otherwise. I, I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think he looks at his numbers, <laughs> his numbers going up and presidents about their own political futures, I think, are eternal optimists. And so I, <laughs> I think, no, I, I don't think he sees it that way, that way at all. And so I just I cannot envision a scenario in which in which Joe Biden pre, uh, pardons Donald Trump. I just don't see that. Uh, Ken? Well, I, 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 I do envision it, but it's only after the November 24 election, not, mm. not before. Okay. So I guess kind of before we close close out on this on this story, do you think what what do you think the odds are? I mean that that Donald Trump actually ends up getting indicted. Do we even know enough to to make any sort of a prediction about that? Ken, what what, what do you think? You mean on the on the documents? Yeah, just on yeah, or, just or, on just on the yeah. just on the obstruction charge. There's actually an indictment against against Donald Trump and not just some of his deputies who were in charge of the documents, which is kind of that's what I think. I don't think Donald Trump yeah. gets indicted for anything. I think some top folks get indicted. Yeah, I, I agree with that on that. But I, I think there is a chance he can be indicted on the January sixth stuff. And I do think um you know, there you were talking before about how they're building it like a like a uh, organized crime case, and they need some top insiders to testify against him. I mean, at this point, you know, we already know Cassidy Hutchinson and, and Pat Cipollone, you know, have have are are you know have testified against him from from the top inside post, and um, I, I think there's a chance he could be indicted on January sixth stuff. I don't think there's a serious chance he could be indicted on the document stuff, but I'm I'm pretty sure. 
that uh, uh, Christina Bob and uh, um, uh, looks like maybe Evan Corker and also who I went to college with, um, you know, could both wind up indicted on that. So I, I guess there's maybe a scenario where one or two people start talking and that the floodgates open, then people start to say, well, I need to get out in front of this. And then I, I guess I could envision a scenario like that, though I would, I would give it kind of a, a low probability. What do you think, Trey? Oh, my heavens. I'm going to be honest. I don't think it, I just said I don't think it's very likely. And I, to caution all listeners, you know, this isn't like when we're we're making election predictions. We've got all these kind of cool models <laughs> that we can use. Right. I mean, this is just pure uh, intuition speculation. But but yeah, if I had to put a number on it, I would say that it's in the single digits. Well, let's move on to talk about some uh, actual elections that took place. Well, a couple of weeks ago, actually, right on August 16th, it was Alaska held a special election for its lone house seat after the death of longtime Representative Don Young earlier in the year. And it was the first time that Alaska used their recently implemented ranked choice voting system, which voters in the state approved in their 2020 general election uh, with by a very slim margin, actually. and. In that system, on Election Day, voters rank their choices in order of preference from one to five. And then in round one, if a candidate gets over 50 percent of first choice votes, that candidate's the winner. If that's not the case, then counting goes to round two, where the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated and voters who choose that candidate first have their second choice candidate counted. And this goes on in rounds until one candidate has over 50 percent of the vote and that candidate then is declared the winner. And because there are multiple rounds, counting takes longer than with a traditional, you know, vote for one election, in this case, just over two weeks to declare a winner. And in the first round, Democrat eventual winner Mary Peltola led with just over 40 percent of the vote, followed by former governor and Republican VP candidate back in the day, Sarah Palin, who had 31 percent of the vote. And in third place, Republican Mick Beglich at 28.5 percent of the vote. And once Begic was eliminated as the lowest vote getter and second place votes for him were reallocated, the tally ended up being a Palin at 48.53% to Peltola at 51.47. As you point out, this comes in a district that was held by Republican Don Young for nearly half a century uh, in a state that went for Trump over Biden by over 10%. And following the announced results of this election, Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, I think he expressed the view of a number of those on the right. He tweeted that Alaska's ranked choice vote system was a scam to rig elections and that 60 percent of Alaska voters voted for a Republican. But thanks to a convoluted process and ballot exhaustion, which disenfranchises voters, a Democrat won and one was in quotes there. Now, I should know, finally, I want to point out there will actually be a rematch of this election in November because this was for a special election just to fill that seat until January of 2023. And so this was kind of a trial run in a way. So I think there are two elements of this, guys, that I want to talk about. First, the ranked choice voting thing. But also, I think uh, and this goes back, I think, to Ken, something you talked about uh, last week on the show, the fact that Democrats seem to be doing really well in these special elections outperforming what one might have expected and what that might potentially mean for uh, mean for November. So on that aspect, first, Ken, what, what's your takeaway? 
Well, one thing that cracked me up about the Palin uh, loss is that, you know, a lot of um, Republicans, including specifically Senator Tom Cotton, immediately started railing against ranked choice voting and saying it's a big scam and that's what cost her and blah, blah, blah. And of course, she got closer because of ranked choice voting um, to keep it to getting the seat than than uh, she would have been if they had a straight um, first pass, pass the post system. She she lost by a lot of votes, you know. Um, Mary, uh, Mary Paltola got more than 70,000 votes. Sarah Palin only got 57,000 votes. So that's a difference of about seven percentage points. Um, uh, so if they would have just given it to the candidate who got the most votes, it would have been a blowout for Paltola. Um, and it was a little closer because of ranked choice voting. But these Republicans are all railing against uh, ranked choice voting to, I think, you know, kind of misdirect um, uh, um, attention about why Palin lost. Um, yeah, generally, I think um, I'm, I'm sticking with what I said last week, that the, the special elections keep coming in a little bit better than expected for Democrats. Um, and a couple of the states um, uh, that, you know, particularly Pennsylvania, I think, have, have become um, it's very it, it's not even close election in Pennsylvania anymore. And Arizona is becoming that way also. In fact, there was a big dust up between Mitch McConnell and Peter Thiel about which one of them is supposed to pick up the uh, the dark money bills to pay to support uh, Masters campaign in uh, Arizona because nobody's nobody's doing it. Masters isn't doing it. The national Republicans aren't doing it. And Peter Thiel isn't doing it. Um, Thiel apparently is still paying some of the bills here in Ohio for um, uh, uh, J.D. Vance. But, uh, you know, the, the I, I think that, that um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say about it, but I think um, I think it's looking to be certainly a good year for Dems in the Senate and but for gerrymandering would be uh, equally good year for Dems in the House. But it's going to remain tough to keep the House, even though Dems are certainly going to get a lot more votes than Republicans nationwide in the House as well. And and when you say but for gerrymandering, I, I think I just want to add something in there. But in, in the last in the last round of uh, gerrymandering or the last round of uh, reapportionment that happens, of course, after every every 10 years after the census was was pretty much, uh, if anything, maybe a slight advantage to Democrats. But if you go back the cycle before that, after 2010, uh, it, it, that actually yielded pretty significant results or pretty significant advantages for Republicans. And I think in past shows, we've talked about how well 2020 might have been more or less kind of even uh, even after gerrymandering, but it didn't do a whole lot to correct what a lot of folks, especially on the left, saw as just extensive gerrymandering in 2010 to favor Republicans. And, and I don't know if that mischaracterizes your well, your view on that, Ken, but I wanted to just put that in there. Yeah, well, it, it I think that would have characterized my view on that about six weeks ago, but um, it actually got a lot worse since then because. Um, because of, you know, when, when we first looked at it that way, um, you know, some things have changed on the ground since then, primarily having to do with judicial decisions. So in some of the states, including Ohio, where courts had previously held that the 2020 gerrymander was unconstitutional um, in favor of Republicans, uh, th they're going to use that unconstitutional map anyhow. Whereas in other states like New York, um, which were just recently gerrymandered to benefit the Democrats, um, the New York courts actually have have stopped that that gerrymandered map from taking effect and have written a new map um, that 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 is um, benefiting Republicans. And so I think I think just because essentially the the Republican legislatures that gerrymandered in 2020 for Republicans ultimately got away with it, 
and the, and the Democratic legislatures that gerrymandered in 2020 for the Democrats ultimately were stopped by their own uh, state courts from getting away with it. But I, I do believe the 2020 gerrymander in the end is going to increase the 2010 gerrymander and, and benefit um, Republicans okay. even more. Gotcha. Trey, uh, what, what are your thoughts just in general about, uh, again, before we get into ranked choice voting, what, if anything, you think this election might tell us about uh, potentially the, uh, the, the midterm elections coming up in a few months here? Well, first, I have to say, every time I hear, you know, Ken, when you talk about the, the, the gerrymandered seats, I think this is an example of where why Republicans have beat out Democrats in some senses, because we went local a long time ago. And Democrats always want to focus on national elections over local elections. Uh, but uh, outside of that, I think it's hard to interpret what's happening in Alaska without talking about the ranked choice portion of it. Because I, you know, one of the issues here is, is that voters, I mean, the reason, we, the reason you're going to institute ranked choice voting is the hope that voters will behave differently than they would in single member winner take all districts. Right. Uh, and, and so one of the things that we see, so when you take a look at the numbers, you have a number of Republicans whose second choice on the ballot is a Democrat over Palin. And I think that kind of behavior happens because you're in a ranked choice. So I think it's difficult to 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 peel the two apart, uh, you know, about what's going on more generally, what it might mean for Republicans, Democrats without recognizing kind of the structural changes. Uh, that that ranked choice voting uh, creates for voters. Yeah, I you know I I tend to agree with Ken that the midterms, uh, the results of the special elections, give Democrats some reason for optimism going into the midterms. But I'm still, on the other hand, I'm still not entirely convinced that polling organizations have quite cracked the problem of how to properly weight uh, the uh, the reluctance of certain conservative voters to respond to pollsters or to respond to accuracy. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I know that there, there's good faith efforts to do that, but, but I'm, I'm still skeptical until I actually see that happening. And so I can still, while I look at the models and I say, yeah, it sure looks like that the Republic, that the Democrats will at least maintain slim control over the Senate. It would not at all surprise me if it ended up being, say, like a 51-49 Republican advantage in the Senate, if Walker ends up somehow winning in Georgia and uh, the Republicans uh, pick up in Nevada. I could, I could you know, totally see that happening. But uh, I'm, I'm very on the fence about that, I guess I'll say so. But, but let's move on to the ranked choice voting aspect of this. I've, I'm a longtime fan of ranked choice voting. You know, I disagree with Senator Cotton. I guess I have more faith in the voters than Senator Cotton does. I don't think it's very convoluted. It's a pretty straightforward process. We're used to ranking things in a lot of ways. And this idea of ballot exhaustion, I think, is, is a bogus argument. Uh, and so I don't think it at all disenfranchises voters. In fact, I think it gives voters more choice and more agency. And that's what he doesn't like. And I think in general, ranked choice voting is probably going to disadvantage extremists of all sides. And if you are an extremist like Tom Cotton or like Sarah Palin, of course, you're going to see it as a bad thing. But I think it is a very positive development. I'm glad that Alaska has joined Maine in doing this. And I hope we see more uh, more states pick this up on and in national elections. So that's my take. Uh, Ken, well, how do you feel about ranked choice voting? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree completely with that. Um, I think it'll have other benefits as well. Like it could um, actually um, facilitate uh, the viability of some some third parties because people will be able to vote for a third party candidate if, if they um, can rank the a major party candidate um, second, I think. Um, but I would also note that in Alaska, it could not have had less impact than it did. I think normally it will have more impact. But what you actually had in this Alaska election was um, out, out of all the people who voted uh, for, for, for the other, uh, the other uh, Republican, um, uh, Begich, that um, half of them did pick Palin uh, as their, their second choice. And the other half divided evenly between people who picked uh, uh, Peltola, the Democrat, um, and people who didn't pick a second choice. So, you know, in the end, the, the effect of all that was that it didn't change the it didn't it didn't move the ball at all. Um, so so for Republicans to use that as kind of the the, the excuse for why Palin couldn't win, um, you, you know, they just could not have worse a worse example of, of that. You know, I, I think I, well, I, I, I tend to agree, but I think the argument that some on the right would say is, well, if Alaska kept their sort of traditional nominate prime party primary nominations, there would have been there would have been time for the party to coalesce behind one candidate. And even though in this scenario, there were plenty of voters who uh, ended up making uh, uh, making Paltola their second choice over Palin, that in a more traditional model, they would have taken a breath and said, wait a second, we don't want a Democrat winning this. And so therefore, we'll go ahead and we'll, even if it's a hold our nose and vote for Palin over Paltola. I'm not sure I buy that logic. In fact, I don't. But I think that's sort of the argument that uh, that, that they're using. Trey, sorry about that. I cut you off. No, Good. Let's. So I, I want to run through that because I actually I think Palin would have been closer in a non-ranked uh, choice scenario, but not maybe for the reasons that are being put forward. Right. So on the science side of this, we recognize that one of the if you if you like this, one of the advantages to the ranked choice is that voters are far more likely to put a non-registered party for a position at two, three, or four. In other words, they're more willing to vote for somebody who doesn't share their party affiliation. What we see, though, and that's what you were talking about, Ken, is, right, uh, in, in the case of, uh, uh, of uh, Bezrick's votes, 29 of them, 29% of them, excuse me, 29% of them end up going to a Democrat. It is really, really unlikely that 29% of those voters who are registered as Republican primarily uh, would not have in a single member district winner take all circumstance uh, voted for the Republican, regardless of the name that was in front of the R. Uh, but I, I think that's a feature, not of the bug of ranked choice uh, voting, right? The idea in ranked choice voting is to, to lower the cost of crossing party lines meaning from your uh, identified party to the other. So I, I think there is something to be said in the sense of, yeah, of course, ranked choice voting changes things, right? I think what, and this is where I think I agree with uh, you, Mike, a little bit uh, uh, more here is, I think this is what actually, this does not give space for third parties. What it does give space, though, is for voters to cross the aisle and not always pick candidates who share their party affiliation, but who they see as being too extreme, which I think Palin is a wonderful example of that. And, and we see 29% of voters who, the, again, the majority of these guys are individuals are Republicans, cross over and vote for a Democrat, would not have done it. I mean, just statistically speaking, we know how these models work. 
they would not have done that on if they had to put that name first. If we still had, a, you know, a, a winner take all, those twenty. I mean, maybe two percent of them, maybe would have, would have made that cross. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I I realize here that we're kind of getting to the end of our uh, end of our time, but before we do, I just want to remind folks that uh, you should, if you haven't already, you should definitely check out podcast when the people decide i've been a regular listener well from the very beginning actually and every episode i've heard totally worth my time i listened to one uh most most recently jenna looks at how a bunch of state legislatures that are not big fans of sharing their power with the people have really pushed back against initiatives and tried to essentially implement laws to make it a lot harder to get around initiatives working and uh, looks into also whether initiatives will survive these forces that i think are arrayed against them good stuff and of course you can find when do people decide well wherever you get the politics guy so highly recommend it uh all right. Well, that does bring us to the end of our regular show. Of course, we will have a bonus midweek bonus show that drops on Tuesdays for supporters. And so if you're not a supporter, we hope you will consider supporting the show. Uh, and if you're a supporter, you get that, you know, you help keep us going. You get that midweek show, ad-free versions of everything. There's other stuff as well. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you'd like to support us on Venmo or at politics guys, there's also PayPal uh, and you can find all of our support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show I mentioned, but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast, we're happy to help you out. Just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out if you subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, and share episodes on social media. And we also love hearing from you. If you've got a question, comment, just whatever you want to say. We want to hear it. You can do that. MailThePoliticsGuys.com. There's also our Discord group for supporters, which is always a lot of fun. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. And you will find links to that in the show notes. And finally, as always, a special note of thanks to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.